You're going to remember this every day for the rest of your life. If you want to get to a goal, if you want to get to your dream, you got to focus on all the little steps. You have to put in your time. You have to be patient and you have to enjoy the process. Whatever you're doing now, whatever you want to be great at, whatever you want to be special at, I'm sure you you maybe already be good at it, but to be extraordinary, you have to do extra. I firmly believe that we are all here for a very specific reason to do something truly extraordinary. But what are you going to do to get there? Welcome to the Magna Method Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by No Foods, K-N-O-W-Foods.com. No Foods' prime directive is to create nutritionally superior, great-tasting alternatives to traditional grain and gluten-based foods like bread, waffles, cookies, pasta, cupcakes, and dozens more. No Foods products are natural, non-GMO, clean and delicious, made with superfoods like almonds, coconut, egg whites, chia, and flaxseed. They're free of grain, free of wheat, free of gluten, free of dairy soy, peanut, yeast, starch, and preservatives. They're high in protein and fiber. They're low in carbs, net carbs, low in sodium, low in calories, and low in sugar. Near zero glycemic index. And I'd also like to provide you with a discount code. That's MEGNA10, capital M, capital E, capital G, capital N, capital A, the number 1010. Type in that code and you'll receive 10% off on all purchases. I'd also at this time like to offer everyone the opportunity to get a VIP package of No Foods products with a value of $300. What I'd like you to do is tag me on Instagram and I want you to hold a sign saying, Mark, I want the VIP package of No Food products. Send it to me. Tag me. I check it out. I'll send it your way. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Magna Method Podcast, and I am very fortunate to sit down today with our next guest. I am not going to tell you who it is. Um, two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, I think, I had the uh, privilege of hiking up a mountain with several um, extraordinary people. I would climb up this mountain. I was invited by Jesse Itzler. We'd climb up the mountain. It's supposed to be 17 times. It's in Stratton, Vermont. It's very challenging. I'll give you more detail later. Our guest is on right now, and um, I'm going to tell you the quick, quick story because this is crazy interesting. Twelve years ago, I read a book, and that book was called That Others May Live, or how long, when did the book come out? Don't say anything else but when the book came out. Tell me. 2000. So this was a long time ago I read this book, okay? (laughs) So I might have even called it short, but I love the book. That's the point. Read it once, liked it so much, went through it another time. And um, I mean, I was just in awe of the the respect I had for the individuals in the book. It was about the power rescue jumpers of the United States Air Force and the crazy schooling they go through, the the 56-week pipeline. It was just insane. I I became really, really uh, obsessed with the special forces. And I was, man, I I have so much respect for these guys. So fast forward. Twenty I'm climbing this mountain, I'm in Vermont, and a gentleman tells me, hey man, you got to meet as many people as possible while you're climbing this mountain, there's some extraordinary people here, and I, you know, he, he had a great point, and until that time I had my headphones in like a fool, I'm just trying to stay motivated to get up this damn hill, because it was really hard for me. I get to the bottom of the hill, I'm on my uh, 10th trip, I believe, maybe 11th, I see a gentleman to my left, this guy's got crazy energy, um, I just want to meet this person. I offer my hand, I shake the gentleman's hand, and he says, uh, hello, my name is Jack, Jack Brim, right? So as soon as he said that, I knew exactly who he was. He's the author of the book that others may live, and I couldn't believe he was walking up this mountain on the side of me. Welcome to the show, Jack. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure. Really, man, this was an incredible thing. Were you surprised when I said uh, I read your book? <laughs> yeah, I was pretty shocked. Were you really? Um, well, actually, if you remember, you know, we were talking about your career first, and uh, I guess as any male in the United States, I think being a pro football player is like the most extraordinary thing that we think we can achieve physically. And we we're talking about your career, and I'm in awe of you. And then uh, all of a sudden, you you kept looking at my name and said Jack, and I then I told you what I had done. Yeah, I was in the Air Force Pararescue. You said, "What's your last name?" And I said, "Brim." And 
to see that you were excited to be next to me was kind of ironic <laughs> to me at the moment because the whole time I was saying, holy crap, this guy's played pro football on multiple teams. This is unbelievable. Oh, man, I was so excited. And, and the, here's another ironic point. To stay motivated, I, I climbed through the night, uh, basically hiked up that thing through the night, and my phone went dead, but I was listening to The Operator by Robert O'Neill uh, about, <laughs> about a Navy SEAL. And it hits me who Jack is, and I said, I got to pay attention, and I have the real-life thing. I was listening to an audiobook. I have the real-life thing. So needless to say, not only did I talk his ear off and ask him a thousand questions, and I'm sorry about that. I offer you my apology. But he also, uh, this guy was incredibly positive, and I know we go back and forth on this, but his energy really helped me up the hill. So uh, thank you so much. I'm glad to hear that, but uh, I felt just the opposite. I think our conversation lost me in the pain, and uh, <laughs> exactly. before I knew it, we had done a couple of summits together. What did you think about that climb? It, it was totally unique. Everybody wants a comparison of, you know, how is that compared to an Ironman or a power rescue school or this or that. And, uh, I really can't compare it to anything else I've ever done. It was, I think the challenge where you were self you had to be self-motivated to make your own hours because you could climb at any time you wanted or stop whenever you wanted. And you needed discipline to try and make a plan for yourself and say, you know, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to get it done. Right. What was your strategy going in? I didn't have one. And no. uh, everybody kept asking. I said, how could you possibly have a strategy for something that none of us, I had never, no one there had ever done anything like it. I mean, I've climbed... Uh, Denali, which is Mount McKinley in Alaska. I've climbed Mount Blanc in France. I've uh, climbed Kilimanjaro in Africa. But this was just something totally, totally different. How tough was Kilimanjaro? Kilimanjaro was very unique for me because every mountain I've ever climbed, whether it was uh, anywhere in, in the world, we were did it as an Air Force team, and you were responsible for everything for yourself. You carried your bedding, your tent, your food, you you made your own water, your own stoves. And if you wanted to move, you had to pick it all up, move it up a thousand feet, go back, break camp, pick up camp, and move that up a thousand feet. Wow. Uh, Kilimanjaro, I thought was on the much easier scale because you have these Sherpas who actually pack up your tent in the morning, and while you're eating breakfast, they take off and move it ahead of you. And when you get up, whatever you're climbing for the day, 1,000, 2,000 feet, you get there and it's set up and they're already cooking your dinner. So uh, to me, that was that was kind of a touristy thing, but uh, it was different. You know, it was extremely uh, kind of motivational in that you go through, you start in the Serengeti, you go through a desert, you go into a rainforest and then into tundra, and uh, deciduous forest and then up to an Arctic area where the actual, uh, you know, it's an ice cap mm -hmm. or at least it's got uh, some glaciers still on it. Okay. So it was, that was very, very interesting. Awesome. Well, I, I, I was so adamant and I, and I told Jack when uh, we were climbing together that, you know, there was just a great energy. There was a great aura about all the people. I mean, I didn't hear one complaint. Did you hear any complaints while people were going up that hill? Absolutely none. Yeah. And that's everybody from the double amputee from the Air Force to uh, a world-class climber who had just broken the world's record for doing the seven summits. That's I mean, right. Everybody had a smile on their face. I mean, it was a grimace, but a smile. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, when I it, it broke me down pretty good when I heard that some guy was trying to do it twice. I thought I was on a roll, and then some guy was doing it twice. That was, yep. That was, uh, that was pretty rough. So I wanted to have Jack on the show today because, you know, the reason I read that book is because at, at one point I was thinking about my uh, football playing career and I had so much respect for the uh, the special forces and the spec ops people and, and, and the pararescue jumpers. Jack was a pararescue jumper in the United States Air Force and I wanted to hear all about that experience because from what I'm told, the dropout rate is extremely high and maybe even higher than most of the uh, well-known or, or glamorous special forces that are always talked about. Is that correct? That is true. At one point, it was the, the highest dropout rate. 
the only reason that's changed is because they better prepare the recruits now than they did, uh, say, when I went through. Understood. About how many guys do they take in, candidates? In my, in my class, they took in 80, and we were told day one that they could only graduate eight because they only had eight slots to jump school and scuba school. So there was no graduating criteria per se. It was they were just going to make it harder and harder and harder until there were only eight or or less left. Hmm. So you you're in. Uh, you start off training. The first part of training is uh, the indoc. Is that correct? That's correct. Indoc or the 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 name for it the students use is Superman School. But yes, it's called indoc. So tell us about the beginning and and run us through. Uh, the, I guess the, the, the very beginning Superman school, uh, what you, what was going through your mind and what you were feeling as you were going through this? Okay. Um, like I said, day one, there was 80 students there and they lined us all up and told us that eight would graduate. Now I, I have always been a very positive person, a very, uh, goal oriented person, but to say that you are not intimidated or fearful that you are not going to be one of the 10% to make it is uh, an exaggeration because I looked up and down that line and I saw guys that were twice my size. I saw one guy that they introduced who just had missed the Olympic trials for swimming by two tenths of a second. Wow. Um, there were other college collegiate runners there from college. And I kept saying, how am I going to compete with a, a collegiate swimmer and um, college runners and these guys that were just obviously much more muscular than I was when I was in and started. I think I was five nine and I was about 155 pounds. And I said, I don't really know what my chances are. They're going to wash out 90%. Mm. But uh, as one of the instructors said later on in the course, which proved to be 100% true, is good bodies from 17 to 25 are a dime a dozen. He goes, but that's not what we're looking for. He goes, we're looking for that mind. We're looking for that mindset, that guy that says, I will not quit no matter what the odds, no matter what the pain, and I will stay team-oriented in that I will not be an individual here. I will be part of a team and try and drag everybody else through that I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that mindset, that that kid who just never – gives that look of what are you talking about i can't do that no one could do that but the guy that says yes sergeant gets up with a smile on his face and says if you need a thousand push-ups i'll give them to you now he knows you can't do a thousand you know you can't do a thousand but at 200 he'll kick you in the side and say get out of here kid and move along and that's all he wanted to see mm-hmm. he put you down there told you you could do something that was impossible you both knew it but he wanted to see what is your reaction to that you know, will you smile throughout it and keep trying, or are you going to just give him that one look that tells him this is not our guy? Mm-hmm. And, and did you have a strong swimming background? Were you a kid that always worked out going into this thing? What was your uh, – how prepped were you? Um, I'll say the thing that saved me was I was an all-around kid and that I lived on the beach. I literally live on the North Shore of Long Island, and – from the day I could get in the water when it warmed up in April until I was freezing in October, I was in the water. Um, I never took formal swim class. I never went to, you know, had a pool in my high school to swim at. So I was always an open water swimmer. Um, and then running was my thing. That was the one thing I did in high school is I ran cross country. Mm-hmm. And I always enjoyed putting on a pair of sneakers and running five miles. I just thought that was relaxing to me. Right. And working out, it turned out that it was a huge disadvantage for these people who live in gyms to come and try and do something like special ops because we didn't lift weights. We didn't hit a gym, per se. We hit a dungeon. It was nothing but four walls, a cement floor, and pads on the floor. And all you did was push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, crunches, leg lifts, uh, eight-count bodybuilders, and I think the only piece of equipment in the room was a pull-up bar. So um, to get somebody that weighs 180, 210, and tell them they have to get up to 35 pull-ups, 
that's a lot of legs and a lot of body to be pulling oh, up and down, man. you know. That's so, some uh, extra weight right there, huh? Yeah, so to weigh 150 and be all muscle, you know, you can flip out 22 pull-ups in no time, and uh, you just had to train and get up to that 30 mark or whatever everybody else is climbing up to because, like I said, there was no criteria. It was just you got to stay with that top 10%. Whatever they achieve, you have to achieve. Understood. So, um, I, I think it was only after the first two weeks when I'll say 60% had already dropped out. And a lot of that was because there are a lot of people in this world that just can't get yelled at. <laughs> They've never been yelled at. They never had somebody get in their face and scream at them. Uh, you got to say that. Uh, say that again for our listeners here, please. Yeah, it's just I believe there's a lot of people who have never been yelled at. They never maybe had that male father figure in their life or someone who, when they were wrong, got in their face and told them they were wrong and would scream at them. Right. I, I think that psychological thing alone knocked a lot of people out. Right. Um, now when we had 20 guys left, those guys handled that. I mean, they had already gone through that phase. Now, as the instructor told us, he goes, I can make you guys all run until you can't take another step. He goes, I can make you do push-ups until you can't get your face out of the dirt. He goes, but there's only one place I can put you in fear of your life, and that's in the swimming pool. And then that's how they wiped out the last of the last. It was in the swimming pool. Um, everyone is at one point or another technically drowned in the pool just to see how you handle that situation and how you can recover from that situation and you told me and, about this uh, we, when we were on our on our hike you said that just the psychology of you when you said and I, you said drown to me and i said you mean really drown and you said yes and you told me the psychology of going back in the pool after you've almost died and they brought you back is overwhelming of course right it is I mean, technically, it is not drowning. They, it's a shallow water blackout. They take you to the point where you go unconscious underwater. Um, and it's done in a very, very controlled situation. They take two people in the pool at a time, and they have the rest of the team sitting around the edge of the pool waiting to literally pull you out. And the instructor just keeps challenging you and challenging you and challenging you with different tasks until you black out underwater. Now, we call it visiting the wizard or whatever the name of the students make up for it. But as soon as they see you start to make spastic movements, you become inefficient underwater. You're not fighting back the way you're supposed to be. Um, then they wait and wait. And as soon as they see you go limp, they give the signal. Six guys come in, pull you out of the pool. and You're out of the pool in five seconds. You're on the side. At no point do you need to be ventilated or have your chest pumped on, but they slap you in the face a couple of times. You come around, you realize what's happened, and they tell you you got five minutes and get back in the pool. We're doing it again. Oh. Now that is an unbelievable feeling. I mean, to do it the first time is one thing, but then for somebody to tell you you have five minutes to get your stuff back together and get back in the pool is another. And I will say more than half of the guys that were left would go run into the showers and never come back out. Or we, in some cases they were taken unconscious one day, they'd make it through the rest of the day. The next day we'd do the run in the morning, we'd run to the pool and they'd get in the shower room and then they just would never come out to the pool. They, you'd see the hands were shaking and they were remembering what happened yesterday, and they just couldn't bring themselves to get back into that pool. So psychologically, that is definitely the toughest part was the pool work. How did you do that? How did you wrap your head around that and, and physically get back in there? What were, I know you said it's hard to have a mindset or a plan, but how did you deal with that? Because you obviously did and did an outstanding job, but how hard was that for you? Oh, it's hard. It's, it's very hard. But I don't think at any point... I said, I'm not going to do this. Mm -hmm. It just put me in fear that if I'm not successful at these tests, are they going to wash me out? You know, am I not going to make it because of this? Am I going to let my fear in that pool 
you know, overtake me. But uh, somehow I managed to every time stay on task and, you know, stay with the project and not think about the outcome that they were trying to bring us to, mm-hmm. you know. And it's not that you were drowned every day. That is, That was some guys were only went unconscious one time through the whole thing. They were very good. They were very good at the tasks that they were giving us. But they would make sure everybody had experienced that at least once and usually early on. But uh, some guys <laughs> didn't have the stamina or the, uh, the lung power to stay under as long as they wanted us to on a regular basis and would two, three, four times wake up on the side of a pool. I give them a lot more credit. <laughs> That's got to be daunting, really. Um, so uh, the, you're doing, uh, you know, the blackouts and the types of things, as you said, it's running, it's your, the instructors are tossing you around. What was the hardest thing? Was that the hardest thing or what was the hardest physical task other than, you know, bring, being brought back? Because that's incredibly challenging in, in the psychological warfare. But what was the most challenging physical task for you? You said you were a great runner. What was the thing that, man, you you really had to, like, psych yourself up or get your game face on for? Um, physically, everything took you to the limits. They knew each person's limits. So a typical day would be you'd get up at 530 in the morning and you would do chores, which is make your bed, get your room squared away, get your PT gear on, fall out. And by 10 to 6, you were out in formation getting ready for whatever happened. But usually the first event was the run. And in the beginning, we were running four or five miles a day. Uh, by the end, we were running 13 miles and carrying a rope or carrying a railroad tire, carrying a uh, telephone pole. Nice. Um, th- those runs actually sound dreadful. They turned out to be the most fun because you have a team, you were stuck together, um, you would sing songs, and you're carrying a railroad iron, and or you were just held together by a big, you know, four or five inch rope, you know, and you're running and singing and you were going long distance. You would do these long runs. Mm-hmm. Some of the hardest runs were the, the quarter mile sprints. You know, you had to do quarters and you do and the sub 80 second quarter. You get a couple of seconds break, turn around to a sub 80, sub 80, sub 80. And those were the most daunting like you had to give every single thing you had every single quarter to, to stay in it um those are the runs you never walk for the uh the months that you're in pararescue school you run from the run back to the barracks you run upstairs you get your mass spin snorkel you run about a mile and a half two miles to the pool get in the pool warm-up would be in the beginning it was a one mile swim at the end it was a four mile swim and then you would start your underwater challenges. Then you would start your over-unders where one guy has to go under and one guy has to go over. Um, then the last thing of the day would always be harassment where they came in the water and would hold you down, make you fight. It only give two individuals would give a one snorkel and you could never come up unless you had the snorkel in your mouth and you were attempting to take a breath. So that means the other person had to wait underneath while you took your breath or two and you had to fight your way back down to get to him, to give him the snorkel and he had to fight his way to the surface to get his two breaths. So the instructor was in there constantly battling the two of you. Now you're not allowed to challenge him in any way, but you just have to fend off his blows and try and fight through his resistance to get to the surface. Um, you'd run from the pool, run back to the barracks. Then you would get changed. You would run and you'd eat, your first good meal of the day, which would be uh, lunch. And that was the only time you're allowed to walk during the months in pararescue school was back from lunch, back to the barracks to digest. Uh, Then you would fall out in the dungeon and the dungeon had a steady workout, which was your constant push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, crunches, leg lifts, um, that they constantly increased. But then at the end of the day, if somebody didn't make a swim time or somebody fell off on the run or somebody, then the whole team paid a penalty. Oh, man. So if anybody failed or came short in any event during the day, the whole team paid for it in the dungeon at the evening. Now, the dungeon sometimes on a normal workout would be two hours, but there were days we stayed three, four, or I think five hours in the dungeon 
with no rest, no no leaving that room. Jack, um, Jack, how do you keep weight on? I mean, you I'm surprised you weren't 120 pounds getting out of out of uh, Parisco school. Uh, it's pretty amazing that some guys in in the in doc lost up to 10 to 12 pounds. I went in at 135 and graduated at almost 155. I put on almost 20 pounds. Wow. Um, now, you, you know, you're eating three meals a day and you're allowed endless food. At the time, we didn't have a dietitian that they have now, and their their meals are very well regulated by somebody else. But, uh, I mean, our metabolism was through the roof, and you'd go in and we'd eat one tray of food, run up, eat a second tray of food, run up and eat a third tray of food. Because that's what it took to sustain us. But, uh, yeah, the guys that were a little little overweight lost it, and the guys that needed more bulk put it on. It's amazing so, how that. It's amazing how that works. Is there is I I know the the seals obviously have hell week and but I did read about a hell night or a hell day. Uh, did you have that when you were in? Yes, um, they were just starting with that. It was the first time they were experimenting with the sleep deprivation, keep you keep you going, keep you working out, and make you do mental tasks and challenges. And that's usually, you know. Uh, with navigation, when you got later on into things, you would be going through the woods and they'd give you maps and keep pushing you and pushing you and give you coordinates and you had to plot courses and, you know. But uh, they were just getting into that, but now they're heavy into that and they pretty much have, it's not a week long, but it, they call it Hell Week and it's, I think, a 72-hour period where they're constantly physically and mentally challenged and, you know, sleep-deprived. Is it true that they send they spend the majority of the day in in a pool, like the almost the entire day? Um, there are days where they, you know, the, if you have the long runs and you were running thirteen miles, that may have been the majority of the day. There are the days when the pool was the emphasis, and you would spend almost the entire day in a pool. And then there were other times when they just tortured you in the dungeon for hours. And I think the worst part of that was they would never tell you. You know, this is going to be over at midnight. You know, we're not going to stop this at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock tonight. You didn't know. When you walked in those doors, you said, is this going to be a two-hour session or a five-hour session today? Ugh. So uh, that that's tough. It's, it's tough not to try and say, hey, if this is a five-hour session, I need to reserve some energy. And maybe, uh, as some guy said, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. To try and cheat a little bit so you could save some energy. But at the same time, the instructors hated when they even thought that you were trying to cheat, that you were, you know, you'd go down on 80 push-ups and act like you couldn't get up. And they'd say, I know damn well this guy could do more than that right now. So it was it was a fine line of trying to conserve energy and not give any sign or symptom to the instructors that you were cheating. Right. And how much, you know, I, I understand, I think um, maybe at this time we – why don't we tell the audience what a the primary focus, or I don't know if we can say primary because it's such a wide range of uh, function of what you guys do. Why don't you explain, Jack, and tell the audience what a pararescueman does? Uh, the uh, specialty of Air Force Pararescue is, if you want to put it in one line, is to recover fighter pilots shot down behind enemy lines. So if that's your primary mission in life, what does it take to do that? And just a quick sidebar before we get to that, it has been proven historically through every nation in the world that combat search and rescue is not a financially sound idea. Meaning if you lose the $30 million airplane and a pilot goes down with it, what does recovering that pilot do for you? Um, if you get him back lucky enough in physical shape and condition where you can get in the cockpit again, that would be great. But we have a lot of pilots. And are we going to insert into a scenario a helicopter or two or a fighter or two into an area that a fighter plane just got shot down in? So obviously they have unbelievable radar and uh, an anti-weapon system in the area. But now you're going to send more airplanes into that area, possibly lose other airframes at $30 million a piece or more airmen. 
it doesn't make sense except for one thing. When you sit a bunch of fighter pilots down and you say, I want you to go in and give it your all, but if you get shot down, we are coming to get you. The war will stop, and we are coming to get you. Now, what kind of psychological boost does that give that fighter pilot to say, I'm going to give it my all, but if something bad happens here, the United States Air Force is going to give it its all. And we do. We virtually, especially in Vietnam and uh, other area theaters, we stop the war, and all assets are directed toward that airman, and everything will be done to get him home, you know. That's huge. So, huge. So that's, that's the mission, is to recover that little fighter pilot that gets shot down from Wichita, Kansas, and to be able to call his parents and say, something bad happened today, but he's home and he's safe. Wow. Um, Having no idea so what does it take to the, do that? the length you went to to get him back, right? Oh, yes. Um, a very emotional story is, uh, I don't know if the listeners will know it, but in Kosovo, when we first invented the stealth fighter, it was supposed to be, you couldn't pick it up on radar, and it was going to be virtually impossible to shoot down from land forces. But uh, sure enough, they called it the Golden BB, shot down a stealth fighter over Kosovo. And we launched, not myself, I was not personally on the mission, but two helicopters, uh, fighters for aircraft support, who flew in. We flew through that radar. They were shot at the entire time with black. And seven hours after him hitting the ground, because they're flown by one pilot, one pilot only, um, he was recovered by Air Force Paris, came in in a helicopter, flown out, and back in Italy at Aviano Air Base, which he had taken off from seven hours earlier. Wow. And he was able to call his parents and say, I was shot down today, but I'm already home safe. Um, he, there is no book. There is no story on that. Uh, when he hit the tarmac in, uh, in Italy, he told the generals, I want no cameras. I do not want my name released. Um, he was discharged from the service, healthy. But two years later, he came around to every rescue base in the world and came in the room. They did not introduce him by name. He told us who he was, and he thanked every individual wow. for saving his life. Wow. And it was pretty impressive. That's incredible. That's incredible. And that people don't even know. Don't even know. That's, that's, uh, I have so much respect uh for the rescue men and, and what you do and what you've done, Jack, is it, um, just side note, a detail. Is it usually one man, two man teams? How does it work? And is it majority one or two? Well, fighter planes are either tandem. There's two, two as you know, in the top gun, you know, in an F-14, you mm -hmm. got a front seater and a back seater. Back seaters are usually nav mm -hmm. pilots. It's up front. Uh, and then many, many fighters these days, it, it's only a single seater. And uh, fortunately, and as things time is going on, we're going more and more into drones, and drones are able to do some of these more dangerous missions where we know the anti-aircraft uh, weapons are out there and they have unbelievable radar systems. So things are getting safer. But if I could jump back, Mark, I never answered your question. And Please. That's what does it take to be a pararescue? Absolutely. That's, Please. So if you want this guy to parachute in or to recover these fighter pilots from behind enemy lines, how are we going to get him there? And what does he need to do when he gets there? And they say, well, the first thing you say, well, the whole point is to send a medic in because nine out of ten ejected pilots are injured. They either have broken arms, broken legs, uh, collarbones. Something happens to them during the ejection or the landing. Um or possibly he's been shot up or he's burnt because of the explosion on the airplane. Um, he may actually have bullet wounds from prior to being, or at least fragmentation from some kind of flak. So you have to be a medic. So we go through what is now basically a six-month paramedic school, nationally certified as paramedics, and then you go through a military medical school, which gives you a lot more leeway. We do things that a medic in the back of an ambulance would never do an amputation. Minor surgical procedures um, will, you know, uh, remove foreign objects such as flak or metal or bullets and 
stitch people up. And so there are a lot of things that we're doing that a typical street medic would not do. All right. So if he's a medic, but you've got to get him to that pilot who was shot down. So we, he has to be an air crew member and either fly in the back of a helicopter that will get him in there, or he has to be a parachutist who can fly over in a different airplane and then parachute into the crash site or the ejection site. So, and then 90% of the time we tell our fighter pilots, if you get hit and if the plane is viable at all, get it over the water because the United States Navy is the biggest Navy in the world. And, the first thing we own when we go to a theater of war is we take over the seas. So we have our aircraft carriers and we have basically control of the sea. So if you, you eject into the water or land in the water, there's a much better chance that we'll get to you before the bad guys will. Mm. So we have to be able to be scuba divers as well. So, and that includes parachuting out of a plane with scuba tanks on, mass spin snorkel regulator, hitting the water, well, halfway down, you eject your your reserve parachute because you won't you don't need that. Obviously, the main worked. You hit the water, you jettison your main parachute, jettison the harness, and then you go right into scuba diving and dive and do whatever you have to do. Um, a lot of times, we'll have to be put in. It'll be too dangerous to fly us right over the scene. They'll have to put us in, say, ten clicks away, six miles away, and we might have to hike over or navigate over a mountain to get to the pilot to the crash site. So we go to ranger school or former ranger school and you have to low escape and uh, evasion. We also go to uh, a seer school, which is survival, escape, evade, resist. And at that point they capture you and they actually put you in a prisoner of war camp and they try and torture you and get secrets out of you and see how you can resist the mental stress of the things that they put you through there. So um, there's a million things. You're a paraparachutist, mountain climber, scuba diver. You're a paramedic. And, of course, weapon systems. You have to be able to shoot the weapon systems on the airplanes and, of course, weapon systems on the ground. When we were in the desert, the first we would parachute out. And the first thing they would drop to us was uh, bundles of weapons to protect ourselves, M60s, sniper rifles. And then they would parachute in, say, the medical gear and whatever else we needed to sustain the pilot. That's, so uh, I guess that's where the name Superman School comes in. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You were, we call ourselves the jack-of-all-trades. We do a, a little bit of uh, everything, but you couldn't be the best at everything mm -hmm. by any means. And uh, now in this days of SATCOM radios and everything is encrypted, you had to be a little bit of a, a radio man. Mm -hmm. as well so so now brings us tell me please i know i want to hear it. i want to hear all of it well it just that's what we have matured the military has matured to a thing called joint operations which we never had before and that's it used to be either it was an army mission or it was a navy mission or it was an air force mission and now they realize you know if you have the best medics in the world are Air Force pararescuemen, but we need to make a ground assault, maybe we need some SEALs on that team. Maybe we need Delta Force on that team. And we need the PJs to be the medics for that team. And the best pilots to get us in there are going to come from an aircraft carrier, so we need Navy helicopter pilots. Mm -hmm. And for the first time ever, toward the end of my career, and now certainly in Iraq and Afghanistan, on the same helicopter will be SEALs, Delta, Pararescue, and whoever else they need to accomplish the mission. So you have the best radio operators, you have the best medics, you have the best SALT teams, and the best pilots flying in. Mm -hmm. So the military has evolved quite a bit in the last decade, and uh, all for the better. And one of the questions I asked you, uh, Jack, was the respect level for the different special operations uh, units. Do they, you know, is there a competition? Do they think, uh, you know, the SEALs think they're the best and, you know, Delta thinks they're the best? Do they respect each other uh, mutually? How does it work? Um, whoever you are in that handful of people, you better damn well think you're the best. You better act like you're the best and you better tell everybody in the world that you're the best. 
Um, but with that said, when it comes down to a mission and we are teamed up together, it's not the individuals are the best. That team, for that moment in time, is the best team on the planet Earth. And they feel that way and will fight that way and protect each other that way. Now, I'm not saying when we meet three months later in a bar in, uh, in Nova Scotia that there won't be a fight outside. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's part of the deal, um, you know, and that comes from each individual, each team, or each operation thinking that they are the best. And, you know, it's a lot of trash talk, just as I'm sure there is in pro football. We know there is. So yeah, it's a little bit. It's the same deal. But when it comes down to playing on the field, you're a team. And when the game's over, it doesn't mean you don't have the respect to walk over to the other bench and shake hands and say, nice hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, you know? right. And how much team is involved within, like, when we were, you were going through training, we were discussing in-doc and you were telling how rough it is. Are the instructors looking to find team players? Because I know that a lot of work is done as a pararescueman individually. Tell us about the team component. Well, that that is what they're looking for. Um, you know, like they, they tell us at the end, you know, healthy bodies are a dime a dozen. You know, we know everybody that walked through the door here on day one was healthy and was capable of training up to the level that we want. Mm-hmm. And certainly anybody that graduates, we know we brought to the level we want. But the thing that eliminates the last 20 or 30% of the people is, are you a team player? You know, was everything you did on your own or were you out there trying to help everybody else through the agony? Because there is no one guy that's the best runner and the best swimmer and the best guy at Cal's. There may be a guy that's individually the best guy at Cal's, the best swimmer or the best runner, but is that all he did is take care of himself or as the best runner, did he fall back? Did he help out? You know, as the best swimmer, did you take the time to tell the other guys, Hey, I'm watching you underwater. This is what you're doing wrong. You know, you got to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. It's not, swimming's not about power. It's about efficiency. And, uh, you know, that's exactly what they're looking for. They're looking for the team player mindset, the guy that's willing to go maybe for him to fail to get the other guys through. Um, and that's what they're constantly testing you for. And that's what they're looking for in your face. They want to see who comes up with a smile and says, yes, Sergeant. And who comes up with that grimace and that look of, you know, if I could meet you somewhere else, I would. Mm-hmm. Because that doesn't fly. Right. And uh, they find ways to get rid of those guys. So uh, it, it's when I look back at it and I say, who did I graduate with? Who were the eight guys that I graduated with? they were the kind of the happy-go-lucky guys. They were the guys that were always smiling. The guy that maybe in day one, you thought they were the the least capable or the least mentally ready because they had a smile on and they, they weren't taking it serious. And they, you know, they weren't inside their own head trying to figure this whole thing out. Mm-hmm. They were just mm-hmm. living by the moment, by the day, saying, hey, come on, you can do it. Let's go, come on. Right. You know, instead of running ahead of the pack, run up next to somebody and say, "Hey, let's go. Let's let's me and you go." Yeah, you know, yeah. this is powerful, powerful. That was like you on the mountain, really. That was very much like you, and you motivated me. And you and, and look, you helped me. I I hope I helped you a little bit. But I don't think people understand nowadays that you know the the greatest pleasure in life is, is helping others and in assisting others. And it's not just uh, it's not the one man show. I I see so many people that just they're trying to be the tough guy or the badass on their own, and they don't realize that, you know, if you help someone else, you're really helping yourself as well. Oh, well, uh, you're absolutely right. And historically, if you go back to any battle and you find out who the Medal of Honor winner was or who the hero was, it wasn't the biggest, the strongest, the toughest, the fastest. It might have been the smallest, the weakest, but the most motivated and the most focused guy and when you look at these guys and you say wow he's not big he's not tough he wasn't he didn't stand out in training but the one thing that stood out is his mental ability of I'm going to fight for the team and I'm going to be there for the team Mm -hmm. and uh, even now uh, 
after retiring from the military, as you know, I told you I'm a, a police officer in New York, in Suffolk County. And, and we, we have a saying. We got to hear that story as well, Jack. Before you get off, we have to hear that story. <laughs> well, just on topic of what you're saying is, you know, it's not an individual, it's a team. When one cop arrives to a situation that is a tense situation, whether it's domestic dispute or there's violence or there's a potential for a fight or there is a gang fight, one cop is one cop. He's looked at as one uniform, one cop. Two cops, when they show up on a scene in two cars, are 10 cops. Mm. And that's the mentality of the team and not running alone and being that guy that's with your partner. And in front of people, you always refer to the other cop. It's not by name, but my partner says, my partner will do this, my partner will do that. It lets people subconsciously know that you are one. There are not two people there. There's one person there, and he's in multiple suits. Mm. And, you know, it's it's the combination of just the uniform, the presence, and I have a saying, I said, shine shoes, save lives, because there are cop killers on the street who have killed and say, well, the first cop looked too big. The mm. second cop just looked like he could handle himself. And the third cop, he was kind of sloppy looking. So that's the guy I took on. So, you know, in life, we're not just a physical presence. We're also a, a visual presence. And that has carries extreme weight in the world. And that can be shown like when you go for a job interview, you know, I think 80% of it is a visual impression of what they get when it walks through the door. Mm-hmm. So it's not just performance. It's, it's what you present. Right. Interesting. So, you know, after you get out of the military and, um, you know, when I was speaking with you up in uh, Vermont, I just assumed you retired and were laying back in the shade and enjoying retirement. However, this wasn't the case. So <laughs> tell us the story. Well, it, it's kind of a, a very lucky story in that I, everybody in the military, it's just a 20-year retirement. And uh, thank God for that because some of the careers that we're in, a lot of guys are not lucky enough to make it through 20 years, and I don't mean that they were killed in action. I just mean, especially in special ops, we get beat up every day. I mean... You know, every day is a gridiron of either parachuting, mountain climbing, scuba diving, and rappelling out of helicopters, fast ropes, and accidents happen constantly in training. We lose more GIs in training than we do on the battlefield. Um, so if you're lucky enough to make it through your 20-year career, doing what you love that you signed up for, everybody's saying, well, what's on the other side of the rainbow? I'm too, I'm too young to sit home. The military certainly does not retire you at a pension where you can uh, afford to live on that. So everybody needs to find that second life, and you just hope it's something that gives you dignity that you felt you carried your whole life, and you want to find that second job that gives you self-worth and makes you happy to go to work. Mm. So um, I took the police exam, and I was lucky enough to score very high, um, they had 30,000 people. The cover of the paper that day said 30,000 30, people sit for 30 jobs. They were going to hire 30. And I had taken a day off from the military, a vacation day, to take this exam, the written exam. Mm. And I stopped to get my coffee. I looked at the cover of the paper on the rack, and I saw that. And I said, you know what? I really should just take my cup of coffee <laughs> and go home and enjoy my day off, my vacation day, because... What are the odds of this? So I wind up saying, nope, it's a couple hours. Go take the test. That's why you took off. I took the test. I was lucky enough to score 100. And I uh, got called, and then they told me, oh, we're sorry. Uh, you're too old. You're 44 years old, and there's an age limit. So I went home and said, well, I scored well, but not going to get me the job and it wasn't a short period of time later someone sued the state troopers for age discrimination so hastily i think every police department in the country took the age limit off to see how the state police would make out well the state police quickly won the lawsuit and put the age limit back on but by that time i had fallen through the crack i had gotten into the police academy and i was now a recruit 
So uh, it's one of the oldest recruits to ever go through the academy. That's awesome. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a job that I really enjoy. It's kind of a paramilitary organization. I still have that feeling of team and having partners. Mm-hmm. And um, and as a PJ, I kind of rolled right into. I am now on the tactical medical team, you know, for the police department. I'm on the dive team for the department. I recover proceeds, weapons, bodies, whatever needs to come out of the water here on Long Island. That's perfect. So uh, I kind of feel like I've, I'm a mini PJ of sorts. I don't deploy anywhere, but uh, in my local community, I'm still doing, you know, things that intrigue me, you know, and the reasons I joined the Air Force. That's just tremendous, man. Uh, it's an incredible story. And, and from what you told me, you also do um, not necessarily charity work. Maybe it is charity work, but you you're, you speak to a lot of high school students and, and middle schools and, and kids and, and give them uh, a heads up of the uh, difficulties and the obstacles and the hurdles that young people face. Um, tell us about that. Uh, I usually go to the the local high schools and uh, well, the one that my kids went to, and actually I knew all the teachers, but uh, in their history classes or current events, I'll go in and I'll talk about the Middle East. I'll talk about the conflicts that we've been through and, you know, what they, how they appear to the individual soldier, as you will, and how different it appears in the cover of the papers and, you know, what you read. But, um, and then I also go in now as a police officer and I, I talk to kids, uh, mostly in driver's ed classes, and tell them, you know, whether you take driver's ed or your parents teach you to drive or your parents uh, hire a company and they teach you how to drive, but nobody tells you what to do the first time you look in your rearview mirror and you see red lights flash. So I I walk them through the steps of, you know, what's expected and how you can basically uh, not talk your way out of a ticket, but perform your way out of a ticket. And that's everything you can do to reduce that cop's stress level as he approaches your car makes him feel better about that stop. And uh, if you do the couple of 10 stops correctly and you reduce my stress level and you're polite when I get there, there's a good chance you're not getting a ticket for rolling through a stop sign or having a taillight out or doing something silly. Right. So uh, I just educate him on, you know, we are the good guys. We have a job to do. And, you know, if you get a traffic ticket, it's not the end of the world. But, uh, you know, you, you might dislike the cop for the day, but that's all right. But right. the bottom line is when you need help, don't hesitate to call that number of 911. Interesting. You know, uh, I tell you what, it's funny that, you know, the, when someone gets in trouble, they're in harm's way, the first person they call is a cop, right? I mean, that, that's what it is what it is. And I hear it all the time. It's like, just like... You know, there's some incredible uh, officers out there and people that uh, are serving the cities and the local um, uh, people of the community. You really have to uh, give them the just due because they, they, they're, they're doing a job that's not easy. I mean, I, I, I think the world of them, not everyone does. You know, there's, there's cops that have uh, had tough careers and made some negative decisions, but... There's also teachers like that. There's priests like that. There's in every walk of life, every job is good and bad. So I salute you and I thank you for what you do, Jack. Thank you very much. No, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I think we're, we're tending to hear that in the military is more often now than ever. And it's, it's kind of nice that uh, occasionally I'll get somebody to stop me and shake my hand and say, thank you for doing what you do. And they just go on their way. And it means a lot. It really does because I'm saying there's a person thanking me who doesn't know what I went through yesterday or the day before or a month ago. And, you know, there are tough times with making these split second decisions that we have to make sometimes. And just like anyone else in the world, you're making a decision, you have to make it fast. And sometimes, unfortunately, we make the wrong decision. But 99.99% of the time, it was out of no malice. It was just. You, you put me in a situation where I had to make a decision. And mm-hmm. now it, the whole world gets to sit back tomorrow and judge my decision that I had to make in a hundredth of a second. Right. And, you know, you can make any decision in life look good or bad if you analyze it enough. But it's true. the bottom true. line, was there malice involved? Right. No. The guy was trying to do the right thing at the right time. 
Absolutely. So, Jack, what's next for you? Because I know you've done triathlons, you, you've climbed mountains, um, you're a very active person, you're an athlete. What's next? What's your next challenge on the uh, docket? <laughs> Funny you ask. I was just talking to uh, Kevin, who was on the mountain with us, and oh, yeah. he actually came in second second place on that uh, that event. Yeah, he's a wild man himself. And, uh, what's he doing? <laughs> He is, and, uh, you know, every year we kind of sit down, usually at this time of the year, and we make out our plan for the next year. You know, what, what triathlon we're going to run, what race we're going to run, do we want to go to Canada, you know, what mountain do we want to climb. Um, so actually our next event is we're going to take Jesse and uh, a couple other people back up Mount Washington in January. I think it's February, actually, this year. So uh, it's it is the windiest place on earth the winds are the highest recorded winds on earth from land are over 300 miles an hour at the top of mount washington believe it or not wow and you couple that with january or february and temperatures are below zero and it's 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 a whole different challenge of hiking and climbing when you're doing it in arctic conditions so uh, that's for sure one of our next events but uh we haven't put together our yearly plan for next year awesome awesome maybe we'll i'll see you on that mountain once more because i know uh you know when once i posted about that on social media everyone and their mother was saying that they're going to do it next year which is what i always say is talk is cheap but it was really i thought it was challenging i thought it was really challenging not impossible by any means but certainly very challenging my legs were thrashed how did your legs feel um i actually felt pretty good and i was pretty happy with not having a plan and the way it just worked out for me. Right. Um, I was at the top at midnight and I said, I think that'll be my last one. And a lot of that had to do with, I didn't want to not win this thing or just, I didn't want to just knock it out right. and be miserable and get up the next day and say, I knocked it out and I didn't meet anybody. Right. right. I really did want to experience the climb. And when I realized I had been going from, I don't know when to the sunset at six thirty at night, Right now it's midnight. I'm just living in the tunnel of a headland, and right. I said, ah, "This isn't how I want to experience this whole thing." It was, it was a good piece. I right. enjoyed it, right? But I said, "I'd rather get some sleep now and get up first light, and then start meeting people again." Because you know, people were definitely more social when the light and the sun was up, and you weren't just walking in the tunnel of headland. So um, I enjoyed that, and that happens to be when I met you, of course, and. Uh, Fortunately, you you beat me by a lap, and I uh, I was cut off that day, and I had to do my last uh, summit the next morning. But then again, I was thankful for that because the next morning it was totally enjoyable. Instead of just pounding out that last one to get it done again, right, right. I you know we went up with a group of Jesse, and I think it was must have been fifteen of us wearing the red jerseys for the final summit, and it just made it fun. You know, right. I, at no point was I even thinking about being tired at that point. So, uh, well, when you think it I, worked out well for me, I saw the pick and uh, of everyone that went up with Jesse at the end, Jesse Itzler, and um, you know, it's interesting because a height, bottom to top, takes what forty five, fifty minutes. Yep. And I think my fastest was thirty nine. My slowest was about an hour or something. Right. And that's when you think about it like that. That's pretty much a workout for the day for most people, right? Yeah. <laughs> with the exception True. the in the amount of work probably you know you you amassed about 24 hours of total work so what i was telling people they said what was it like i said walk over to that bench and do step-ups for 24 hours that, that's that's what <laughs> it was like so you know when you think about it like that that's a heck of a leg workout but um, it was a lot of fun. I was very, I was grateful to meet so many uh, wonderful people, positive people. It was a tremendous experience. I met yourself, and and I want to tell the listeners that at one point we were going down. Uh, Jack and I climbed up. We were going down in the gondola, and a woman said Jack was giving me advice on nutrition and what I should be taking in for hydration. And I think he gave me what were those are hydration tablets, electrolyte tablets, electrolyte tablets, and. Um, the woman that we were going down with turned to Jack and said, how do you know so much about uh, nutrition and, and medical, uh, something to that effect? And Jack turned to her and said, I was in the military for a little bit. Which I thought was a joke because I was so excited to tell her who he was 
And uh, Jack just dismissed it. I spent some time in the military like it was no big deal. So the humble nature of this uh, gentleman was really, really special. And I appreciated that. He wasn't pounding his chest. He wasn't bragging. He was nothing but positive and supportive and, and very humble. And uh, that's that. you don't see that every day, Jack. So thank you for that as well. Uh, hey, thank you for your company. I think yeah. you helped me as much as I did you, that's for sure. Well, I'm, I, I hope so. I'm not going to keep you much longer. There's two. I only have two questions for you, Jack. I usually ask a speed round of questions, but I only want two from you. And, and the first question would be, what attributes, the attributes for um, both a leader and a teammate? So we'll start off with a uh, teammate first. What are the most important attributes if you want to give two or three that you're looking for in a teammate? Because we're very team-oriented. We're uh, at our facility at Anatomy at 1220. But also, we're trying to create that an even better team environment. So, what would you look for in the ideal teammate? Oh, you know, a teammate is is the guy that you can look to when you're having a tough time without him demeaning you for it. Right. You know, someone who's willing to bolster you up at the time when you're at your low, because a real teammate knows that. Uh, yeah, he may be at a high right now, and he may be performing at a sufficient rate, but you're not. But he knows maybe in three or four hours or in 24 hours, he may be the weak link at that point, and he may need you. And if you just live with that concept of we're here to nurture each other and believe in that power of of people and the power that comes with one person is one person, two or 10, three or 30. Mm. That mentality that, you know, and we're all in this together and we're all here for each other. And if one of us doesn't succeed, none of us succeeded. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in the military a commander or a pilot or whatever will come back. His only concern is, did everyone make it back? Not did 90% make it back. 99% make it back. Did everyone? Because mm. that's the only time you're going to find satisfaction in it. And that's, you know, I, you just like on a football team, it's not, did I make the Pro Bowl because of today's game? The question is, did we win? Did we win? Not that I win, you know. So that's the guy you're looking for as a teammate, the guy that you can lean on when you're down and the guy that, you know, you're glad to bolster when he's down and, this tremendous satisfaction in getting somebody else through, you know, uh, I don't know what point in life you learn that it's, it's more positive to give a gift than it is to receive a gift. But, uh, same thing goes for a team player realizes it's more positive to get someone else through who maybe would not have made it without you than it is for you to get through. Right. So, uh, when you can show that to someone that you're willing to give your all to get them through, even though it might cost you, you know, that's the guy you want to be paired up with. That's the guy you want as a teammate. Absolutely. Um, thank you for that. Uh, the second part is what uh, yourself, obviously, you were a Master Chief, correct? Yes. In the Air Force, Master Chief is in the Navy, and it's the same rank in the Air Force. It's called Chief Master Sergeant. Chief Master Sergeant. I was Sergeant. a Chief Master Sergeant. Uh, a high-ranking leadership position, and you were under some uh, great leaders, I can imagine. Um, what attributes would you look for in a competent um, special leader? Leadership is a lot of, number one, not losing the abilities that you learned as a teammate because yeah, you'll hear it a million times. Like They sometimes have... Officer Chow or the top three rank going in, they eat Chow first. And, mm -hmm. you know, everyone will respect the leader who says, no, my men eat first and then I eat. And that's a leadership quality, which there are millions of. Um, but I think it's also remembering you're a leader slash you can never lose the I'm a team player um, or about you, okay. you know, and, you know, you can lead from the front and not from the rear and you can,
do all these things, but people want to see that you're willing to do what you're asking them to do. And they will understand there are times when you can't because you're one and you need to lead 20 or 30. And the only way you can do that is from a different position or, and not be the point man. And you have to assign those positions, but, uh, they'll understand that, that you would, if you could, by the way you present yourself. And it's more like you say, you know, what you present than what you say. And a good leader needs to be able to articulate what he wants done. But more importantly, he needs to be able to show himself through his body language and his presentation that he's there for you and with you. And, you know, he'd almost rather be doing the task himself than sending you out there to do it. Understood. Um, Understood. You know, we all know and have seen good leaders our whole lives. The hard part is to dissect that leader and say, what is it that makes him a good leader that I can take away from him and put into my style? And uh, I, I've had, like you said, in the military, we have mentors. You, you know, I, my PJ daddy or my mentor was a guy named Mike McManus. And I'm blessed enough to still be great friends with him today, even though we've been separated by geography or almost our whole careers. But uh, there's just so many things that he taught me. And it's, he says, I don't care how right you are. And that person that you're trying to convince to move from A to B feels that you're wrong. He says, and you know, he's wrong. He says, you can't go in there and say, I don't care what you think. I know better. You need to go from A to B. Mm-hmm. He says, leadership is planting seeds. He says, and you go in one day and he said, you tell him, I think we should try moving from A to B. Think about that. And I, you know, I'm not positive, but that, that might be the best move for us right now. And then 30 days later, say, hey, did you think about that? And even if they're going to have some resistance, they're going to put up their what they think about it and say, I hear what you're saying. I, I think maybe I need to rethink it myself. Give it another week or two and go back to, you know, I thought about everything you said, but I still think it's best if we move from A to B. I think it's, it's in our best interest. So why don't you help me make a plan for how we're going to get that done? You know, me and you will sit down and we'll, we'll write out some kind of draft on how we're going to best accomplish that and make them buy into it and be a part of it. He goes, and by the time it goes to happen, he goes, he'll be a B long before you get there. The guy has made up his mind, made up his plan, and he's moving on, and he's going to tell you how to get there. That's so, awesome. Awesome. You involve him, right? Just, that's it. You get them involved in the plan. Right. You know, make it their plan. You know, Even if they decide they're going to move it in a different way than you originally planned, it doesn't matter. The point was to get from A to B. It wasn't how to get there. Right. I love it. Gold nuggets of uh, experience and, and, and leadership traits. Thank you so much, Jack. I really can't thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, I can't thank you enough for your service uh, as a pararescueman and currently as a Long Island police officer. Thank you so very much for making time for us. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome, Mark. Pleasure was all mine. Absolutely. Best of the family, and I'll be in touch, my friend. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.